Thank you so much for leading us, worship team. That last song, Ken, it's almost like we planned it. Uh, perfect segue into what I want to talk to you guys about this morning, the simple gospel. In fact, the, the first sermon title I had for this morning was the good old uh, school lesson I was taught, uh, Kiss, Keep It Simple, Stupid. But my kids are in the room and I get in trouble if I say stupid, so I'm not going to say it uh, this morning. But that was the original uh, title, But I, I do uh, want to talk to you guys about the simple things that we've been given that we tend to overcomplicate. Uh, the Jewish people, uh, God's chosen people from the beginning, have a number of festivals and feasts and celebrations that they uh, use to commemorate times where God was faithful in their past and they, they remember them. And so it's a celebration of the Passover or of Purim, which celebrates the story of Esther, all these different uh, festivals and celebrations. But there's one in particular that's always fascinated me. It's in Leviticus 25. You're welcome to turn there. Mark 12 is where we're going to land eventually. Uh, but in Leviticus 25, the Israelites are given the command to celebrate a very particular feast. And it's not a day long. It's not a week long. It's an entire year. And it's called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee is pretty intense. Because in the year of Jubilee, they were told if you have any slave servants, indentured servants uh, that are working off some sort of debt, they're free now. If you've acquired land from anybody, you give it back to them. If you choose to sell land or buy land during this year, no profit is going to be made. You are not to plant. You are not to water, and you are not to harvest anything this year. All debts are going to be forgiven immediately. And what's particularly fascinating to me about the year of Jubilee is we have no record anywhere of the nation of Israel celebrating the year of Jubilee. Now, we do have record of an argument one time between two influential priests about whether it was the 49th year that is the year of Jubilee, the seventh, seventh, as it's given in Leviticus 25, or whether it's actually the 50th year. And without knowing that, there's no way they could celebrate it at all. And so we have record of that. We have record of, uh, well, what if you acquire land from a kinsman? Okay, so it technically hasn't left their family, so do I have to give it back? What about if I did it out of service to somebody? I purchased land that they no longer could care for, and so I actually got them out of a bind. Or I loaned them money, and we both agreed to the repayment plan. Do I, do I have to really forgive that debt? It wasn't taking advantage of them. They needed money. I had it. We agreed on an interest rate that was fair. Do I have to give it back? We have all sorts of records of arguments about how this ought to be done, but not even one of it actually being celebrated. Because surely God couldn't have actually meant that they're going to give up everything. That they're going to give back this land that they've acquired faithfully. God's people 
Not taking advantage of anyone, just simply being good business. But surely you don't mean I'm supposed to give it all back. Roger Olson uh, wrote a, a, a commentary on Luke, and in it he said, the commands of Christ can never be softened, they can only be ignored. It's pretty easy when we're given these, these big kinds of things, like give it all back. Well, that's not fun. So what if instead, God, make you a deal, I'll do a little bit of that. I'll shorten the term. I, I won't charge interest for this year only. Okay, I, I won't plant, but whatever fell off in last year's harvest, if that grows, I can eat that, right? And we start to make these little bargaining agreements. No, Christ has called us to live a life that is wholly devoted to Him and and in nowhere are we given caveats. Now, of course, you know, uh, we've been freed from the, the, the law of Moses through the death of Christ and so I'm not insinuating that you ought to start doing your calculations to find when your jubilee year is and all these other sorts of things, but... We do have some commands in, that Christ has given us that we, we tend to try to soften a bit because they just seem too hard. They couldn't really have meant that literally. And so we start to form all sorts of calculations. Now, what could he have really meant by that? It reminds me of a, a film Josh alluded to earlier. We in the, the movie world call this a film. It's not a movie. It's a, it's a bit highbrow, uh, but, but I, I think it articulates well the fascination we have as humans with overcomplicating the simple. We humans have a, a, a bit of a history of overcomplicating the simple. Mark 12 is where we're going to be this morning, and, and in Mark 12, the, the scribes begin to ask Jesus all sorts of questions. Right? They're, they're going to look for a gotcha moment here. They're going to they're poke a little bit here and they're going to they're gonna go here and, and they think they've devised the best question because if he says on this side, then we'll catch him there. If he says it on this side, we'll catch him there. He can't get away. And yet in Jesus' wisdom, he is able to answer each of these questions in a way that is both faithful and un- unable uh, uh, to, to stump him. But then when we get to the end of uh, Mark chapter 12, we have a different kind of scribe. And for Mark to identify this scribe as a different kind of scribe is something in and of itself because Mark is particularly uh, hard on the religious leaders of their day. And this one gets a very uh, fair treatment, particularly for this gospel writer. And so Mark 12, starting in verse 28. One of the scribes came near and he heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he, being Jesus, answered them well, he asked him, which commandment is the first of all? Jesus answered, the first is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and beside him there is no other. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself, this is much more important than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. 
When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to them, You are not far from the, kingdom of that, from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any question. Now, I, I want to say something about the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees that we read about in Scripture. We often uh, like to criminalize these people, demonize these people, and make them out to be monsters. I, I have a, a different take, if you'll bear with me. I think, at least at some level, these were people that deeply wanted to please Yahweh and thought that being really, really good and imposing those rules on other people was the way to get there. I really do believe that. And part of the reason I believe that is because if in fact they're monsters and all they wanted to do was bully the little guy who just wanted to love Jesus and and be happy, if that's who they are, then I can convince myself that I'll never be that because I'm not a monster. But if in fact, they are people that love God, that misunderstand the way to please Him, then I'm a little more wary, a little more aware of what I could become if I'm not careful. This scribe in particular makes clear he, he has his interest in line. He wants to please God, and it's got to be a bit overwhelming. You see, Jesus, or I'm sorry, God establishes creation with, with, with man, and it's perfect community. There's not a list of rules, there's a rule. And the understanding is that they will live in perfect community as long as they will live in perfect community. God walks in the garden, they they speak to Him like He's a friend. And then when sin enters the world, they leave. God establishes relationship with Israel in Genesis 12 and 15 as a conduit then to the rest of the world. And they go, hey, if we're going to be your people, we, we need some, some parameters. And he says, okay, I'll give you a list of 10 things that will certainly help you live in community with one another and with God. Don't worship other gods. Don't put any other gods above me. Obey your parents. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Really simple rules on just how to be a a good human. But we humans are really good at overcomplicating the simple. And so by the time Jesus comes around, there are 990 uh, pharisaical laws that have stemmed off of this thing. So it's no longer uh, keep the Sabbath. Now you've got, uh, um, you've got, you know, commandment five and article A and paragraph six and line two to let you know whether you can walk a mile. Yeah, that's fine. But 1.1, now you've worked and you can't go that far. Right? How much can you cook? Which bathroom things can you do? Right? All these different, all these different rules start to come out. And so I can only imagine if your goal really is to please Yahweh at some level, You're just going, Jesus, I can respect your wisdom. You seem to really be in tune with God. Uh, I just need, what am I supposed to focus on? There's so many rules. And I know, I trust this, I'm assuming a lot about this scribe. Let's assume he really wants to please God and he really wants to be in communion and he finds himself just shackled by all these rules and he goes, Jesus, could you just give me, what do I need to focus on? Can you narrow it down some? Because it's just too much. And Jesus says, yeah, I can narrow it down. Love God and love people. 
And guys, we have spent the next 2,000 years overcomplicating that very simple message. His answer begins with the Shema. Every Israelite would have known the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4, Shema is just the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He establishes, uh, and and Jesus is going to catch some flack for blaspheming and calling himself God and the Son of God and all these things. He doesn't get caught up in any of that. He He doesn't lay out the Trinity here. He just says, recognize that the God of the universe is the God of the universe, the creator of all things seen and unseen. And because of that, his second answer is now we owe total and full devotion to this God. And you do so by loving him with your, with your mind. What you think about, what you obsess over for some of us, what, what occupies your brain with your strength, right? The things you do, your heart, your motives, your soul, right? Everything that is you poured all in one direction. All pointed at this God that we, that we all desperately, I think, want to be closer to. He says, just aim it all in this direction. Guys, our hearts are aimed in so many directions. It's, it's very natural that most of, in this, most of us in this room spend most of our time overwhelmed. Because we so desire influence. We so desire prestige. We so desire recognition. We so desire all of these things. And he says, no, no, just pour it into me. Pour everything you've got into loving God well. And show people that. See, we've even overcomplicated this to where we go, hey, well, if you want to really be devoted to God, you got to have the same understanding of church attendance I do. If you really want to be devoted to God, you got to vote the way that I do. If you really want to be devoted to God, you've got to think the way that I think. You've got to like the kind of worship style that I like. And very quickly it becomes clear, this God we're pointing everybody to looks a whole lot like the guy in the mirror. Looks a whole lot like me. He says, no, we're pointing everybody in the same direction. And I know the fear, well, if, if we stop, emphasizing all the things, but it'd just be chaos. People would just be doing whatever they want. But you know what I've found? I'm 31, not a long life, but you know what I've found in my life? The more people are devoted to God with everything that they have, the more they wanna gather with believers and worship together. The more devoted people are, point everything they have into who God is, the more they wanna engage with scripture. I want to dig in and get to know him better. Right? The, the more people are devoted to God and, and pouring everything they have into that, the, the more their behavior begins to look a lot like Jesus's. Now, fair warning, Jesus's behavior didn't go well with the church. He was always with the folks he wasn't supposed to be with. He was always saying things he wasn't supposed to say and doing things he wasn't supposed to do. 
I'm not telling you the church is going to like it. I'm just going to tell you the more you're devoted to God, the more your behavior is going to start to reflect that God that you love so much. He says, it's really simple. Just, just aim everything you got at this thing. The rest will take care of itself. And then he, he finishes with, and just love everybody around you. Remember the, the Samaritan, right? He said, who's my neighbor? We had this in seminary, and I remember we were reading a, somebody's commentary of the, the, the story of the Samaritan. And man, every single thing they go, well, if you, if you pay really close uh, attention to the Greek, you'll notice that uh, when this guy walks by, what he's really representing is this. And when this guy walks by, he's representing this thing. When this guy walks by, he's representing this thing. And then the third person walks by and he's this thing. And the money they exchange represents this. And the guy that cares for him represents this. And the donkey he rode does this. And they go, they, they go everything's got a symbol. And you know what, what, what is actually true? The Israelites would have never understood that if that was what it was supposed to be. You know what they did understand? The person the world tells me I'm supposed to hate the most is somehow now the measure of how well I'm loving. If you want to evaluate yourself, you go, I I don't know if I'm being loving or not. Don't evaluate yourself based on the way you love your spouse. I don't evaluate you the, the way you love based on the way you love your kids, your best friend, your parents. Figure out who it is the world says you're supposed to hate more than anybody else and how well do you love that person? How well do you love the person that is as far across the political spectrum as they could be from you? How well do you love that person? How well do you love the person that's as far across the theological spectrum from you? How well do you love the people that the world says you're supposed to resent? But here we go again, overcomplicating the simple. And we go, well, okay, but Evan, but if I love that person, then they're going to think that I accept everything they do say or think and ever have. That is so counter to any logical statement I've ever heard. Never once did the love my parents showed me trick me into thinking my improper behavior was acceptable to them. Never once did my parents show me grace and love and I went, maybe they like it when I talk back. It didn't ever happen. Maybe they like it when I disobey. They still love me. That must mean that they like all the things that I'm doing. We don't, nobody does that. But boy, we start running all sorts of traps on our love. We go, okay, well, if I love him and then, and then he tells her that I loved him really well, then, then she's gonna tell this person. And they might think that this is, and then we start running all this stuff here, there, and the other, and we overcomplicate the simple one. Jesus said, just love the people around you. It's not that complicated. I remember my dad, when I was in high school, visited a little tiny country called Transnistria. And Transnistria is a little corner of a also small country, Moldova. Moldova was formerly communist, and when they chose to be uh, a democracy, this little pocket in the corner said, well, we still want to be communist. And so they got cut off of all their resources, and it's a deeply, deeply impoverished uh, country now. And my dad was part of the first outside team that they let come in 
they went with Buckner, uh, and my dad was a journalist and a writer for the Baptist Standard, and so he went to write an article about what Buckner's doing in this country. I remember my dad had to buy all this crazy winter gear because they were going during winter months, and in Dallas, I've never done any cold weather anything, and in Dallas we don't get that cold, and so we didn't own anything, so he was, you know, borrowing jackets, but he had to buy a pair of gloves, a pair of gloves that are totally useless in Dallas, Texas, and so uh, they were walking back to the hotel to grab their things to go to the airport, and he saw a homeless man, and he took his gloves off, and he handed them to him, and as they walked a little further down the road, uh, somebody that was with them said, I wouldn't have done that if I were you. He said, well, why not? I mean, I'm going to get home. They're going to be collecting dust in the closet. I have no need for them, and he said, well, but the homeless here, they're, they're usually addicted to drugs or alcohol, and so he's probably going to sell those gloves and buy things. And my dad said, well, that, I have nothing to do with that. All I know is there was a man without gloves and another man who had gloves he didn't need, and I gave them to him. Sometimes we can get so caught up in what other ramifications there may be of our love that instead of going, okay, how can I love well? We just go, I can't love at all if I don't know how to do it the right way. And so we give ourselves an out. And I've got some bad news for you. Jesus' life and death on the cross removed any sort of caveat for our command to love people. There is no room you go, but Jesus, you don't understand how nasty they've been to me. Jesus, you don't understand. If I treat them well and love them and, and be kind, they're going to take advantage of my kindness. Well, Jesus, you don't understand. If I start loving other people, I'm going to get a reputation among my friends. Jesus washed the feet of the man who was going to betray him in a couple hours and then went and died the most humiliating, gruesome death you could imagine. I don't think our excuses go real well there. Bonhoeffer would say, it's grace because it's free, but it's costly because nothing can be cheap to you that was costly to our Savior. told you earlier there's no record of this celebrating of the year of jubilee but I, I do suspect there were probably faithful families that did this I don't know most families don't write down a history of what they did but I suspect there were families somewhere that went hey there's this thing we're supposed to do and we're gonna do it in this house and I also suspect their neighbors went are you telling me you're not gonna plant anything this year you're telling me you're going you're gonna to trust that God's going to provide for your family like he told us he's going to, uh, and you're not going to plant at all? Nope. Well, but you're going to like go ahead and like go out to the field and get the things that, that grow up on their own, right? Nope. Not going to do that either. We're well, not really going to give that, that huge swath of land you got from the, the Robertsons, are you? You're not really going to give all that back. You know, yeah, we're going to. But you're not going to give away all your, all your workers, are you? You're not going to. Just forgive them. Let's still owe you work. They got years left. And they go, yeah, I'm going to do that too. What about the money that that family owes? I, I know the bill on that and it's huge. And they go, yeah, I'm done. You do this seriously? I suspect there are going to be people around you going, are you, you sure you, sure you want to do this? 
You sure you want to give up this job because it requires you to do some unethical things you're not proud of? You, I mean, that's a big paycheck. Are you sure you're going to give that up? You sure you're going to move your family to the other side of town? You know what the schools are like over there? You sure you want to do that to your kids? Are you sure you want to sure you want to be hanging out with those folks? I heard they do some unsavory things. Oh yeah. Jesus was pretty straightforward. He said, We can do all the stuff. We can show up here every Sunday. Move that comma over ten, two spots to give our 10%. We could serve with teaching the children's ministry. We can be pretty good neighbors. But if we do all the stuff and we're not loving, Paul would say, don't waste your time. Psalm 51 says, he is going to, to take joy in your sacrifice. But only after your heart's been restored. To having joy again in your salvation. Then, Psalm 51 says, I'll delight in your sacrifices. Paul never says don't serve. He just says don't fool yourself into thinking you can cut out the love part and do the rest. And God will go, you know what? Nine out of ten, we'll take it. Jesus says, look, it, it's more important than all the sacrifices. It's more important than all the, the duty. If you're going to have to pick one, then just spend a, a whole lot of time loving. And I don't use this uh, uh, carelessly, recklessly loving the people. No, no concept of repercussions. Just loving God with everything you have and pointing all your ambition towards it and then loving every single person around you and make that your focus it turns out you're more likely to be sacrificial more likely to be a gatherer more likely to be somebody that serves more likely to be somebody that leads more likely to be somebody that gives He says, look, if, if you've got to narrow it down, love the Lord your God with everything you have and love everybody that God's put around you. It's really not complicated. In fact, it's, it's super, super simple. Let's pray. God, you're so good and you're for our good. We're so grateful for that truth. Forgive us. We inevitably take it for granted. God, I pray that you would do a, a work in the lives of the people in this room. When we leave this place, move in such a way that we couldn't take credit for it if we wanted to. God, start a movement in this city that we can only explain by acknowledging that God did that. It's your name I pray. Amen.